She's an executive coach, an author, and a speaker, specializing in showing people how to transform their lives and work for the better by applying insights from the behavioral sciences, such as behavioral economics, psychology, and neuroscience. Her book on that topic, How to Have a Good Day, Harness the Power of Behavioral Science to Transform Your Working Life, has been published in 14 languages and in over 60 countries. It was hailed by Forbes as one of their must-read business books, described by Fortune as one of their top self-improvement through data books, and listed by Inc. Magazine as one of the best 15 leadership and personal development books of the past five years. During her 12 years with McKinsey & Company, she co-founded McKinsey's leadership practice and designed the firm's approach to transforming senior team dynamics. She's also founded and remained a faculty of McKinsey's flagship training course for senior female executives. Previously, she spent the 1990s working public policy as an economist at the Bank of England. She's a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and has written on behavioral change topics for the World Economic Forum, Fast Company, Business Insider, Huffington Post, and Wired. She's one of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100 coaches and member of Silicon Guild, a founding fellow of the Harvard Affiliate Institute of Coaching, and has degrees in economics from Cambridge and Oxford Universities. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Caroline Webb. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curve benders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curve benders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Exciting news alert, exciting news alert. Our newly created NOR Forum now has almost 150 members who have joined us to download exclusive content, ask questions, and jump into interesting discussions. From ideas on your strategic relationships to co-creating new market opportunities to my current research and writing, Curve Vendors, as strategic relationships in your non-linear growth to what I'm thinking and reading replays and downloads of past podcasts, join this free community to not just consume great content, but apply it in your personal and professional growth journey. Learn more at norgroup.com slash forum for exclusive content, resources, and events. 
Hi there. Welcome to the uh, Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is uh, Caroline Webb. Uh, she is a recent friend from the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 community and uh, one of the most uh, subdued, subtle <laughs> people you're ever going to meet is this a uh, very calm demeanor is a giant within. So, Caroline, welcome to the Curve Bender podcast. I need to be less subtle, I think. <laughs> I, I love it. You know, you know. After after we meet, I read your bio: an economist oh. and former McKinsey partner, and a best-selling author, an executive coach, and all the amazing things you've done. Kudos on the continued Thank success. You. Thank you. That's really kind of you, and I'm very happy to be here. So for those who may not know as much about you, could you kindly share a little about your background, kind of where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived here? Sure. Well, my first career was actually in public policy. I worked as an economist, and I loved the idea that economics was a human science so that you could think in a structured way about human performance and potential. Uh, but as I went further and further into that career, I realized that the human aspect was a little bit missing from modern economics. And so I went into consulting to focus on organizational change and leadership. And I did that. I thought I was going to do that for a couple of years. And I ended up doing that uh, pretty much since then. So 12 years at McKinsey, where I was one of the people that built up the leadership practice and uh, seven years since then having a lovely portfolio life of writing and speaking and still coaching being the center of it, uh, I have to say, but uh, a lovely mix of showing people how to thrive at work in various different ways. I love it. So you wrote this book, uh, How to Have a Good Day. Mm. Share the premise and share really, and, and you talk about behavioral science mm. and how relevant it is in leadership, in really kind of that foresight into navigating the organization. Well, that background in economics didn't leave me in the sense that I still really like taking an evidence-based approach to how we think about how we can be at our best and how as leaders we can help others be at our, uh, their best. And so, you know, over time, I found that there are ways to use the evidence from behavioral economics. And then uh, I did some additional training in psychology and neuroscience. And I found that by using uh, studies, by using research from, uh, from those fields, I was often able to work with leaders who would otherwise be quite skeptical of the possibility or the need for change. And once they understood that there might be actually a way that they would help their brain work more effectively or help others' brains work more effectively uh, if they tried a different way of working, I found that the behavioral science often got me a way into being able to help them that otherwise would have been closed to me. So that became really central to my work um, over, I guess, 15 years. And, and that's what the book is based on, those years and years of, of coaching and teaching and noticing what really made a difference for leaders and trying to show them, uh, show people, you know, the, the basics of the science that underpinned it. So that's what the book is about. It's, uh, it's a sort of life's work, let's say. <laughs> so what, what were the top skeptical reasons for change? What, what did you, what do you continue to come across? And I'm fascinated by mm -hmm. leaders who see the market pivoting all around them, yet they're either enable, incapable, or unwilling to, to move. Mm. I, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, 
everybody's different. There were different patterns. But I will say that I think one big uh, archetype was the leader that felt that um, the way to get the best out of people was to push them hard and that more was more and helping them understand that actually the average brain does not do its best thinking, its most creative, most intellectually brilliant thinking if it's working incredibly long hours and is being yelled at the whole time. So uh, what I've found is that uh, certain managers and leaders who have that style were willing to try a different style that was more about uh, finding uh, the inner motivation and boosting people's inner mo- motivation um, when they understood that actually a brain that's feeling under pressure and under threat and under stress actually does not think that clearly. So that was definitely one of the themes that came up again and again throughout the years. Others, others that, uh, and you're right, we all see different behavior. Are there some common threads in, in behavioral styles that you saw that, uh, and I'm fascinated by their willingness to change? Um, well, I think, I think one of the things that um, has come from the outskirts of what people thought was worth spending time on to, the, to, the, to, to, to really now to the core is understanding that it's not a waste of time to think about how you um, bond the social fabric of a group, of your team. Um, so I definitely have also seen a, you know, more readiness to now embrace the idea that actually it's worth helping uh, the people on the, your, your team see each other as real human beings, real rounded human beings. Um, you know, I think 15 years ago, there was a lot of joking about terrible sort of team activities that were, you know, you were doing abseiling and, and uh, you know, uh, extreme sports together as a way of sort of doing team bonding and trust falls and all of that. Um, I think now I, f- I see people um, much more open to just spending the time to get to know each other. And I can think of several leaders in my mind as I'm, as I'm <laughs> saying that to you, uh, their openness has increased over the years. And you've, you've found that, that openness, I'm always fascinated. We go do a team building exercise, right? Or incorporate opportunities for folks to get to know each other better. How have you seen great leaders sustain that over some period of time? So it's not really an event. It's got to be an yeah. ongoing opportunity, right? Yeah. Well, there's one guy I work with um, who is, you know, on the face of it, he's the most business focused guy you could imagine. He's, you know, really, he's, he focuses on the results and, and so forth. But he's a really good example of a leader that has really uh, embraced the, the, all the things we've just been talking about. So he will take his team away for three days, four times a year. And obviously, some of that is doing real work. Um, on the strategy and the plan and, and the budget and so forth. But he always carves out real time to do something that will deepen the connections between the people on the team. Um, and he will, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, the dinners are fun, that they're really a, a chance to kick back and that questions are asked that help people get to a level of depth uh, in their understanding of each other. So, you know, what 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 book really changed your life uh, or, um you know, what, what movie really, um, you know, gave you a sense of what you could do uh, in your life. You know, these conversations over dinner, he's not shy to go there because he knows that it will improve the quality of the conversation when we're coming to the, the hard, the brass tacks of the numbers. You and I uh, chuckled about uh, Brexit. And oh, unfortunately, I the can't current, chuckle about Brexit. <laughs> I, I know it's sad in so many ways, but let's carry on. Oh. And, and unfortunately, on the US side, other side of the pond, our, uh, I think we've forgotten civil discourse. Mm. You, you, you talk about resolving workplace disagreements. Mm. 
Talk about that impactful leader when people have difference of opinion and, and where this defensive mode in our brains kind of kicks in when you're trying to really coalesce everybody around a common mission, vision, or direction? Yeah. Well, one of that's you've homed in on exactly, you know, probably the biggest idea that emerges from behavioral science over the last uh, few decades that, you know, I think if leaders understood, it would change quite a bit in how they led. Um, so the idea is that uh, when a brain is, the brain is an, at any given time scanning the environment for threats to defend you again, uh, defend against. So, and those can be threats to your self-worth or your social standing, uh, not just physical threats. And if it perceives something that undermines your sense of self-worth or social standing, it will go on the defensive and it will launch what I think most people will already know of as a fight, flight or freeze response. What I think is less well known is that when that response is powering up, which, you know, typically looks like sort of snappish behavior uh, in the workplace or avoidant behavior, there's actually less activity in the part of the brain that is responsible for sophisticated thinking, less activity in the prefrontal cortex. So it's not just... uh, it, it's not just that when people are sort of disagreeing that, uh, you know, things might feel a bit unpleasant in a team. It's actually also that if they feel that their, uh, their point of view isn't being respected, then the quality of the conversation, the quality of the intelligence will actually drop uh, because uh, people's brains are on the defensive and it's, um, you know, it takes a few IQ points off if we are, if we are on the defensive. So I, I, I really have seen amazing impact from leaders who understand that if you can help people, first of all, figure out what they agree on, you drop the sense of threat, mutual threat. And by doing that, you allow uh, their brain's prefrontal cortex to effectively operate um, closer to its optimum. And in other words, people become smarter if you get them first to focus on what they agree on. And uh, I love seeing that playing out in a team situation. It just is it's transformational. Um, it's just gorgeous to see how much more creative the answers are after you get people off the defensive uh, using that technique. So it's, you're, you're creating a, a fantastic foundation, a positive foundation to build on. And, and that disagreement is still going to come up. Yeah. Um, but you, you're, you're in a healthier place to kind of talk through it. Yeah, so true. And, and you know, it's not just sort of emotionally it might feel nicer, but it also actually intellectually is better. Um, and I've, I remember working with a professional services firm with a, a small group of partners who were running the, the company. And they had two fundamentally different viewpoints within the group on how uh, the strategy for the organization should play out. And one, uh, one group felt that they should focus on uh, smaller clients, but lots of them. And the other group felt that they should have bigger clients and fewer of them. So pretty classic kind of big choice to make. And uh, the, the exercise of getting each group to articulate the other's point of view as if they really liked it and really believed it and saw the, the point of why the others thought what they did. Um, that, you know, there's a bunch of things you then, you know, can walk people through after that and say, okay, well, where is the place that we disagree and why is that and what's shaped our views? But honestly, the magic comes when you start by articulating the other side's point of view. And, uh, you know, frankly, if any, if every leader learned how to do that, then I think that, uh, that the teams would be more functional more of the time. If you just joined us, you're listening to the brilliant and the kind Caroline Webb. She's an executive coach. She's an author. She's a speaker. And what I love is she specializes in showing people how to use insights from behavioral science 
to really improve their professional lives. She's the author of How to Have a Good Day, which I'm fascinated. has been published in 14 languages, more than 60 countries. Caroline, you wrote an article why every leader will need behavioral science 101 mm. in the fourth industrial revolution. As we're inundated with more news about AI, ML, and blockchain, and autonomous vehicles, and all these things that really encompass this fourth industrial revolution. Talk about that. Talk about mm. how should leaders looking ahead embrace behavioral science, understand it, internalize it, embrace it, and apply it more proactively? Mm. Well, we know that any task that is uh, repeatable or predictable is likely to be automated. When you look at uh, look at estimates from um, McKinsey's done a lot of work in this area. The World Economic Forum has done a lot of work in this area. Um, the the it's not that a uh, huge number of jobs will completely disappear. Uh, a chunk of them will, but it's more that large numbers of the tasks in everybody's jobs will be automatable. So then you think, well, okay. So if if robots are doing everything that's predictable and repeatable, what's left to us human beings? And the answer has to be that we have to become better and better at playing to our human strengths, you know, the areas that we're really distinctive, um, that robots are still just about not yet quite able to do as well. So, you know, that's about, uh, that's about creativity. That's about uh, wisdom when there isn't an obvious way forward. That's about uh, c- making connections with, with our colleagues and, uh, and indeed our customers um, using, using empathy. And it's about inspiration. It's also about the ability to inspire. Now, these are things which, okay, yes, you can get crazy AI created you know, imagery. I mean, there are some quite funny things out there, you know, with uh, cat names being generated uh, by, by an AI. But um, when we're looking at, at creativity, wisdom, empathy, and inspiration, these are still things that, that humans excel at. And the science is really clear on what it takes to actually overcome the barriers to us being those brilliant human beings more often. Uh, but most managers are not getting taught that basic behavioral science. And that's where I think there's a massive opportunity in the next 10 years to make everything that, you know, you and I are talking about absolutely mainstream with a, an understanding of the basic principles of what it takes for a human brain to operate at its best. Um, given that we're thinking hard about, you know, how machines function at their best, you know, I think we should think about the software in our heads a little bit more. So other than reading your brilliant book, can you share two, three practical, pragmatic advice for leaders if they wanted to become more behaviorally science astute? Well, obviously, I mean, that actually is the reason I I, I did write the book, because I, I felt that there was a gap, uh, that there was a lot of great science that wasn't being translated into practice. And I, I wanted to try and write something that could be read by someone at any level of uh, formal education in the, the behavioral sciences. So, you know, I, I, I did try to, I did try to do that. Um, but I, I think, you know, there are really only two principles that people need to get their heads around. It's really the fact of understanding that everyone has um, a, a an automatic system that takes care of most of what we do and a deliberate system in our brain that does the things that we're conscious of and that the deliberate system is smart but gets tired very easily and the automatic system is fast but uh, has blind spots. And then to understand that uh, the 
that when the automatic system has picked up a threat, that it tips us into just defensive mode. And that the more you can keep people out of defensive mode, um, the, the better uh, working environment's going to be. So, you know, I think that the, the more that people can uh, stay current in, in reading, um, you know, whether it's, I don't know, whether it's Harvard Business Review or whether it's, uh, um, you know, whether it's uh, signing up to um, bulletins from the British Psychological Society. I'm not just saying that because I'm British, but they do this amazing research digest that's just absolutely fascinating and, and really helps you stay on top of the science. Um, just being aware that actually the more you learn about the human brain, the more likely you are to be able to help human beings thrive in the, the fourth industrial revolution. So in thinking about, and we talked about curve benders mm. as uh, really strategic relationships in this idea of future of work, how do you believe behavioral science will evolve in the next decade or two? Well, I think that every time we get more ad advanced um, brain scanning, we, we get more of an understanding of just how complex um, complex the brain is. Um, and I think that what's going to happen is that as we get more uh, more of that understanding, some of the things that we have thought in the past will, will, will obviously change. So we have to be flexible and willing to adapt. So for example, I think a lot of people have heard of this thing called amygdala hijack. Um, this is a, you know, two tiny little blobs in the brain, which I think everybody kind of thought was the, the fear center of the brain. And then as brain scanning uh, improves, it turns out, oh no, the amygdala actually responds to positive stimulus as well, not just to things that we're fearful of. And then we have to th rethink a little bit about, okay, well, what is it that then puts our brain on the defensive? Okay, then we've got a little bit more of a sophisticated understanding of the things that might do that. So I think, you know, I think that that is probably one of, going to be one of the drivers of change as we move to more portable brain scanning and more accurate brain scanning. I'm fascinated. I, I, I recently read that brain really is the last frontier. That there's it's there's so much there that we simply don't understand. Yeah. We don't yeah. realize the depth that that uh, that is there and it's possible. So we're talking about again curve benders as strategic relationships that shift both your direction and destination. Can you talk about some of these curve benders in your life? Again, you and I chuckled and I and I and I. Uh, in jest, but in absolute seriousness, I said, there's not too many people I know where Adam Grant and Daniel Pink and Tony Hish of, of Zappos and Tom Peters and Susan Cain have endorsed their book. Mm. Caroline, you really should elevate the caliber of people who rave about your writing. <laughs> have, have you thought about that at all? So, so. Who have been some of the curve benders in your life? Well, you know, actually, that that lovely list that you just uh, reeled off um, includes includes some people who've been very kind to me. You know, when I sent the manuscript out of the book, I didn't know these people, and actually, it was a really uh, really delightful experience to then not only you know have them pick up the book, but also then to realize how kind they were and how generous they were. Um, every single person that you mentioned actually leaned in and, and made, made something possible for me. So Tom Peters, for example, he, um, 
uh, you know, he introduced me to my to my speaking agency. He gave me advice on how to step out of the shell of being a kind of consultant, which is a very private life, into uh, how to to step out more publicly with your ideas. Um, and he, you know, made it possible for me to see how to take a really big leap in my career. And I think that you know, these curve benders don't have to be the same as you. They don't have to have the same personality as you, but to actually, you know, make new things possible and to, to have the, the willingness to create a, uh, an opportunity or to kind of, you know, to make a connection. I think, you know, I, if I look back across my life, Tom is one of those and there are, there are several others as well that really made a big difference. So one of the questions I'm often asked when I talk about curve benders as relationships that dramatically impact your life is uh, people, you know, curious and, and I've, I've been curious as well is how do you become a curve bender? Mm. You, coach, you coach a lot of executives. We, you and I see amazing people like Marshall in many ways who uh, it seems to be intentionally get these or create these opportunities to shape the direction and future of others, what do you believe makes an individual a great curve bender themselves in the lives of others? Mm. Well, I think, I think it, there there are lots of different models of curve benders, I'm sure. And your research will, will, will end up coming up with, I'm sure, different ways of doing it. But um, if I think about the people who have been curve benders for me, they have been, able to see my strengths perhaps more clearly than me and they've been able to start a conversation in my own head about what I could do to play more to those strengths and uh, again the research is is very clear on on why that's a good thing the, the, because if you're playing to your strengths even as you're stepping out into new things that are really scary uh, and you know perhaps feel stretchy or even unpleasant if you're actually going through a period where you're doing what isn't much fun if you're if you're thinking about how do I use my strengths in this situation, then you're less likely to have your brain go on the defensive. There's just a little bit of a sense of stability and a reminder of your own self worth. If you're saying, no, actually, okay, look, I know that I'm good at you know uh, reaching out to people and having nice conversations with people. So let me see how I can use that in this really difficult situation. Um, it just means that you're slightly better able. In fact, you know. Gallup, uh, Gallup's research would suggest actually much more able to to perform uh, under pressure and to do difficult, um, you know, navigate difficult periods. And I think curve benders are really good at helping shine a light on those strengths and how to use them more more creatively. I'm fascinated by uh, they, they the fact that they see a better version of us. Yeah. They see a, a dramatically elevated version of us. Yeah, as you said before or certainly advance of us seeing that ourselves. Well, I mean, you, you said that I was subtle. I'm now I'm thinking, Oh, I'm subtle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is really, really powerful to actually get another perspective on yourself and to say, okay, well, actually this is going to enrich my sense of, you know, who I am and what I might do. So I, I do think, I do think that the curve benders in my life have been very good at that. Yeah, so I, I'm I, I wake up with ton of energy. I've always been accused of having a ton of energy. So whenever I meet someone who's very has a very calm demeanor, I'm in and maybe a British <laughs> British background. It could be, you know, actually, and I'm half French, so actually there are these, these two sides to me. I can dial it up or turn it down. 
I love it. It's like the duck above water, right? Above water, calm and collected. Below, you never know. You never know what's happening behind the scenes. So, Caroline, this has been fascinating. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for all the great work you're doing. For those who may want to learn more about you and your work, how, how can they get in touch? How can they learn more? Thank you. I, I'd send them to carolineweb.co. That's Caroline, C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E. W-E-B-B dot co. And uh, you'll find uh, various things about what, I've, what I'm up to. And then if you're also interested in how to have a good day and, and finding out more about the book and all the resources that sit alongside that, you can go to howtohaveagoodday.com and you'll find them there. Uh, Caroline is is also very modest. She's a, she's a, often a contributor to Harvard Business Review. She's written for the World Economic Forum and Fast Company. And again, I found several great articles on courts and business insiders. So uh, I, I think all you have to do is uh, Google her name and you'll find all kinds of uh, great resources on Caroline Webb. Thank Thanks for being uh, the guest on the Curve Benders podcast today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR Forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast on how to have a good day with my friend Caroline Webb. She really is as delightful in person as I hope you heard through this podcast. Three comments Caroline made during an interview really resonated with me, which is one is evidence-based approach to how to be our best. Many leaders I work with, many leaders I interact with have been in their industries or roles for a number of years, and they heavily rely on their intuition, which is great. But what about the psychology? What about the neuroscience? How to be more open to really thinking, leading, and changing differently? So again, uh, I love her comment about the fourth industrial revolution and how uh, automated tasks are going to disappear and yet uh, will become better at playing uh, at our human skill sets, things like creativity and wisdom and really communicating with others, if not inspiration. So I thought that was a great opportunity to really think about and look for opportunities to invest in those. The two principles she shared in how to really get better at this behavioral science approach to leading, which is, you know, everyone has this uh, automated system and how to be more deliberate and in, in, uh, how to be smarter in how we think about how we behave uh, and how we engage others. And then the defensive mode and how to, if you keep people out of that, they're much more likely to be creative. They're much more likely to contribute to what you're really trying to do. I also lastly appreciated her comments around 
uh, curve benders in her life and how uh, they see, and this seems to be a common thread with different folks I'm interviewing, uh, curve benders tend to see the best version of us and they nudge us and they push us to reach for uh, previously uh, unattainable new heights. So although we recorded this episode well before the COVID-19 pandemic shut down, the global economy, I think uh, you heard how many of Caroline's ideas are so incredibly relevant. I would highly, highly recommend her book, How to Have a Good Day. Uh, don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So I hope you'll check them out in our free member-based community, the NOR Forum. And you can join us at norgroup.com slash forum. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurvebendersPodcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Thank you.